Welcome to the Growth Adventure Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Appel. I am thrilled to be joined by Karen and Tim Haley. Uh, this is our first husband and wife interview. We've had two brothers on. It was a great conversation, so looking forward to how this one goes. I have promised both of them that my goal is to have them have a great weekend after this and not be arguing. Uh, with that, Karen and Tim, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. So Karen is the executive director of Indianapolis Cultural Trail, and Tim is president of Latitude Indiana. So a little bit later in the conversation, uh, both of them will kind of talk about uh, what they do, what their organizations do. But to kind of dive right into it, Karen, Indianapolis Cultural Trail is, is a lot of things, right? I mean, for residents in central Indiana, you probably know what it is. But for our listeners outside the area, could you maybe kind of explain what the concept of a linear urban trail is. Sure. And really, there's nothing quite like the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, a legacy of Gene and Marilyn Glick. It is everything from a linear park to a super highway for bikes and pedestrians to an art door, art gallery, and a, a beautiful urban botanical garden, all free and accessible to the public. And if that weren't enough, it, it connects you really anywhere you want to go in downtown Indianapolis. And it connects the city's cultural districts. It serves as the central hub for the city's and central Indiana's greenway system. And it really serves as the way that people experience and travel and commute and exercise in downtown Indianapolis. So that's that's it in a nutshell. I could go on, but but that's the short summary. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a little over eight miles and growing? Yep, correct. It is eight miles long. If you do the whole thing, it's eight miles. And we are in the middle of working on an expansion project. We anticipate breaking ground later this fall to add about two miles to the Indianapolis Cultural Trail. And it will be our first expansion since the trail opened 10 years ago and are just really excited to, to bring that to life and bring more connections and more of that cultural trail magic to more neighborhoods and communities in, in Indianapolis. So I'm going to follow up immediately with the the p word pandemic so my you know i think most people experiencing the cultural trail as residents we use it a lot but indianapolis for those who don't live in the area is a major convention city and the cultural trail is a major connector to our convention center as well as cultural districts around the city so what did you see start happening in march of 2020 what were there any pivots that you made or any things that you were able to do that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise or or lessons learned that you've continued to activate the system? Yeah. So right away, I think all of us, you know, just like both individually and company, it all went to what is going on in hunker down mode, right? Those of us who could were working from home and really the the trail and our, our programs really, you know, took a hit's probably not the right word, but you know, it, it was sparse. You know, the number of people we obviously canceled our programs right off the bat. Our volunteers decreased overnight. Our bike share ridership significantly decreased overnight. And we adjusted from a staffing perspective because the trail is accessible and available 24 hours a day. So we still wanted to be able to, for people who were still working, our our essential workers who we know use the trail to get to, to work to the hospitals, we wanted to make sure that was still a good experience for them. So we shifted operationally so that we only had one person working at a time and everybody else, you know, was working from home like the rest of the world. And so we saw, you know, at the beginning, it was it was still there. It was still being used. But after about the first four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, when we all realized, like, we can come out of our homes, the trail burst to life and has just continued thriving. Are the volunteers really didn't come back until this past year, 2021. I mean, 2020 was very much a slow program year for us. As we were all adjusting, we, we turned to virtual programming just like everybody else. 
but the the desire and the demand for free and accessible outdoor spaces just grew and skyrocketed and continues to do that today. So we have thousands of people who use the trail every day. We have begun to use the cultural trail as outdoor venues for arts and cultural performances and really thought about how we can continue to use the trail, not just as the place for people to walk and commute and get exercise, but really turn it into the destination for where you can come and see and have community with people outside, outdoors, you know, in a safe way. Similarly with Bike Share, one of our most recognized programs, Pacers Bike Share, Bike Share ridership just skyrocketed last summer. You know, once everybody realized, again, it was all right and safe to be outside, you could be six feet apart, just like on the cultural trail, you can do that on Bike Share. And fortunately for us, we had expanded the program late in 2019. So we had bikes in neighborhoods along the city's greenway systems and trails. And so that, again, just people came out of out of every nook and cranny and we're not only on the trail but we're using the bike share program in, in ways that we haven't seen before well thank you i've got some follow-up questions for you on risk management and legal and technology but i want to give tim a chance here before we we get back to that so oh this has been fun this has been good to listen to <laughs> tim your your background is as basically the atticus finch of environmental law but you <laughs> You spent the formative years of your legal practice practicing in big law. And I'm not going to say the name of the firm. You can look at this bio. You can find out what it was. Wonderful firm, brand name in central Indiana and around the country. Great place, but it is big law, right? I mean, so what was it that led you to make the move into, I guess, what I would describe as kind of more of an entrepreneurial legal practice where, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but instead of being the person who is practicing the law, your job now is to help other attorneys practice law in the way they would like to do it for their lives. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there's never one thing that that sends people to change courses in their life. But one of the biggest things for me is the stuff that I was doing. I, w- I was a lawyer for 14 years almost. And the stuff that I really liked, like really liked, was working with people, solving problems, getting into the weeds on, you know, some, maybe it's really contentious, maybe it's not, but like trying to figure out, like if, if everybody is coming at this from a reasonable angle, why are these problems persisting and, and kind of getting into people's heads that way and trying to figure it out. That's what I really loved about the practice. And that's what I get to keep doing. I mean, that's, that's the job now it's, it's, you know, trying to find attorneys that, are really good at what they do. They just didn't, you know, maybe they don't want to be a partner at a big firm. Maybe they don't want to be general counsel. Maybe they already were. And they're like, you know, I, I still want to practice. I still want to use my mind and and I still have a lot to give to the profession. So, you know, one of the reasons that I did move over to Latitude is that the way the legal industry works is, I don't view this necessarily as a derogatory thing, but it spins a lot of good lawyers out of the system. And it's not because, I mean, it could be for innocent reasons, right? Like a divorce or a death in the family or a sickness. You know, maybe your mom or dad is, is sick and needs needs care. Maybe you have a sick kid. A lot of these things make it really hard to be a lawyer 100% of the time. In fact, it's, it's impossible to do in some circumstances. And it's nobody's fault. It just It's just happened that way. So what drew me to Latitude, Latitude had been around in Nashville, and the CEO there asked me to open the Indianapolis office. It is a startup. It is very entrepreneurial. But what drew me to Latitude is that it was giving me the ability to help those people, which is what I liked about the law, 
problem solve on a bigger scale and, you know, have a bigger platform. So it was a lot of really cool things that came together at exactly the right time that made it work. So follow up question on that is what was the biggest surprise for you when you moved from practitioner who was still doing all the things that you said you loved about problem solving otherwise to not being a direct practitioner and being solely responsible for even though there are things that you love, like I'm sure there were probably some surprises along the way. Well, so I guess the biggest surprise and Karin will back me up on this. It took me probably three or four months to get out of my got to work, got to work, got to work, got to work mindset. I mean, to the point where maybe I didn't even have anything to do on a Saturday, but I felt like I had to do something on a Saturday just because it, it had been muscle memory for so long. I thought for sure that that would come easy and it didn't. <laughs> it took me some practice and I'm still occasionally fighting that habit. I know the feeling and I will freely admit <laughs> that unfortunately there are some Saturdays, Sundays and vacations where I wake up and I feel like what, what did I do? Something. Oh my gosh. I, I, I didn't do something. Yeah. yeah. And look, I'm at this point a couple of years into my journey as a leader and probably self admit one of the hardest things for me to do was to recognize that there are other people who are better at what they do than I am. And I just need to let them do it. And it might not be exactly the way I do it, but quite frankly, Usually it's better. Yeah. That's, that's the fun part. I mean, yeah. Help, helping people excel on their own terms. It's really rewarding in ways that most people don't expect. As the leader of an organization, right? Your team that you surround yourself with, they a lot of times follow your lead. So if you're the one who's always, you know, working on vacation or not taking vacation or, you know, sending the emails at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, what, what example is that setting? This is where I was looking forward to the, the back and forth. So <laughs> feel, feel free to take, take hosting duties at any point. So Tim, I actually, I do have a follow-up question with you. I want to come back to you, but I want to go back to, to Karen first, which is Indianapolis Cultural Trail Inc. Obviously it's a private nonprofit, but basically you're operating a park system. Correct. Which presents, which presents <laughs> some unique risk management challenges. So I, I guess two questions. One, from your leadership point of view, how do you approach the balance between wanting to activate and to encourage interactions with a 24-7 linear park while at the same time being married to an attorney who lawyers are trained to be risk averse, right? So he probably is saying, ooh, I'm not sure if that's always the greatest idea. So I guess the two questions are from a leadership point of view, how do you balance that risk management safety perspective along with wanting people to engage with these public spaces that by definition, eight miles and growing, you can't have complete control over them 24 seven. And you're also right. married to an attorney. <laughs> right. And I, I, I know a lot of attorneys. So I, I think on the second part of that question, I, you know, use my all of my time spent with Tim as kind of one filter from his attorney mindset that I hear about in the house and also think about, you know, if whatever I'm experiencing, right, if it's an something that happens on the cultural trail or a document I'm reviewing, you know, it's like, hmm, if this is making me pause and I'm thinking the attorneys that I know would say, hmm, about that we should probably think about pulling in a real attorney and looking at that or, or giving a call, you know, to are we, am I allowed to say that we're, we're client at Gregory NFL or giving a call to our, uh, you know, insurance partner. And we appreciate uh, the partnership. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's allowed. Um, that's always and, allowed. That's good. And, 
So yeah, so so it's kind of one of those two things. If I see something or someone on our team is like, should we just take a little closer look at this? Generally, we, we do call Gregory and Appel first, our insurance partner, to just kind of make sure that we're thinking about this the right way, is the coverage in place, et cetera. But then it's also, okay, let's call an attorney and find out what else we need to be thinking about. And, you know, for the most part, because we are a private nonprofit organization and we do work in close partnership with the city, you know, from a public safety standpoint, it's the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department that is, you know, truly from a safety standpoint, you know, out on the trail, patrolling the trail, providing service and assistance on the trail, just like they do any other place in Indianapolis. So that's a, a partnership element of what we do by managing, you know, eight plus miles of public space in Indianapolis. That is, you know, there's it's that close public private partnership that we have with the city. But all the things that are 100 percent cultural trail led, right, like our outdoor programming, our live performances, our volunteers, all of that. That's where it's like, let's let's do a double check and make sure that what we're doing is just being done in a correct way from a risk management to mitigate our risk. And I did not plant that question. I did not ask her to, to give the reference. That's true. Post, I'll, but, I'll, I'll vouch for Andrew on that. <laughs> but thank you. So technology follow-up for you before, Tim, I get back to you is, so the Pacer Bike Share Program launched, I would probably say, shortly before kind of mobile technology and kind of boundaryless rental ability really kind of hit the market. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is just anecdotal, just viewing people. Even though it's a dock-to-dock system, I still see a lot of people utilizing the Pacer Bike Share program, despite the fact that in the summer months here in Indianapolis, for those outside of central Indiana, the birds and the limes descend upon the city en masse, and you can pick them up anywhere, you can leave them anywhere, it's all mobile-based. So I guess two questions for you. One, how have you continued to get riderships engaged when that technology platform was kind of leapfrogged shortly after it got rolled out. And then the second is, where do you see bike share going in the future? Good questions. Yes. Pacers Bike Share is a station-based bike share system. And once you check out a bike, you can ride wherever you want. We just ask and require that you return it back to one of the 50 stations that we have. And honestly, the, the consistency that you're available, that you will find a bike at a station and that you will have a place to check a bike in, especially for people who build their life and their habits around using Pacers Bike Share. You can't beat that because if, if you rode one of the other you know devices, a scooter, someone else picks it up and takes it, right? It might not be there. So if you're really thinking about a reliable form of transportation, having a station-based system provides that for you. We've got a team of people who, who work really hard every day to make sure that the consistency and the high level of customer service and maintenance are there for you to have a great experience using bike share. And then I think to your second question, we also have a mobile technology. So while it's it's not, you know, leave it wherever you want it and, and it's check it back into a station, you can still access bikes on your phone. And our, our app tells you real live, you know, bike and station availability. But at the same time, you know, we hear from people all over the place who are visiting, who are residents, who use the cultural trail all the time how much they appreciate the order that having a station-based bike share program provides. And from an accessibility standpoint on the cultural trail, you know, we don't want a cultural trail that is, you know, ADA accessible. It's made for everybody, no matter your age, no matter your ability. It is a not 
accessible trail if it is littered with scooters or anything really all over it, right? So so we work really hard to keep your confidence on the trail that you'll have that safe and accessible experience. And so for us, the station-based, we, you know, we hope that, and we work with this pretty closely with the city to think about how can that model also serve other modes of transportation? You know, do we need to think about having mobility transportation hubs where you are forced is probably too strong of a word, but you, you know, incentivize or encourage people who are using other devices to still park them in the same spaces. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question, but just maybe provides a little bit of context to to the different types of operation. Future Pacers Bike Share. We're thinking about what e-bikes would look like in Indianapolis. We're thinking about what does it look like to have bike share in more neighborhoods than we have them now, and to also kind of build along the city's investment in greenways and trail systems and parks, because that's where we see a really high ridership is along greenways and trails. And again, for our listeners outside of central Indiana, Indianapolis, Marion County has been investing heavily in greenways outside and including the cultural trail to create hub and spoke network throughout the city. So thank you to our municipal leaders for that. One last follow-up question for you before I get back to Tim. So we are recording this podcast on the eve of the Gen Con convention, uh, which is one of the larger conventions in Indianapolis. It could really, honestly, this could be relevant to any convention that, that brings tens of thousands of people into downtown Indianapolis and interacting with the cultural trail. If there is one sentence that got left as a review about the cultural trail from a visitor coming to Indianapolis for a convention, what would you aspire for that to be? It happens all the time. Indianapolis, I had no idea this cultural trail was so amazing. And we hear that. We hear that from people who use the cultural trail. So in this, this cultural, I had no idea. You know, I'll come back to Indianapolis. I'll tell my friends and that's kind of like that kept secret for those of us who live here and get to experience and use the cultural trail. And it is for, for people listening, there really is nothing like it. People come from all over the country, all over the world to see and touch and feel and learn about the cultural trail and how it continues to thrive and how it has truly transformed downtown Indianapolis and, and really improved quality of life, public health, economic development, you know, all of the things that the cultural trail has done so we hear it, and it's really a people who've never been here before. They're just blown away by how beautiful and easy it is to navigate downtown Indianapolis walking and biking, and that's because of the cultural trail. And it takes you, you know, really everywhere that all of us locals love going. And there's there's a reason that uh, the, the follow-on tagline behind the cultural trail is the legacy of the Glicks. So thank you to them Absolutely. for making this possible. So, Tim, I've I've got uh, two questions for you, and then I'm going to turn it back to Karin before we get to the lightning round. So the first question, this is kind of a follow-up on a conversation that you and I had a few months back, which is around the concept of diversity and inclusion, not just in the broader community, but specifically within law. And you made some really salient points about how the Latitude platform helps you kind of advance efforts of diversity and inclusion within the legal practice. Could you maybe touch on some of those briefly? Yeah. I mean, we, we have numbers to back it up. I, I don't know the reasons for it. The practice model that, that we have at Latitude is one that is disproportionately female. I mean, it, it, it's attractive to, to more women than men. We have more women than men lawyers on our roster, almost completely inverse to what a big law firm would look like. We also have disproportionately high attorneys of color that are attracted to this platform for whatever reason. I don't know why. I, I just know it's true. You know, having this alternative model here, for me, it was it was nice because it's like, hey, you could practice law and not kill yourself. 
But I think what we found, what I found in now almost the two years that we've done and is that that model was sorely needed for a lot of different people of all you know races and genders, but it has been disproportionately beneficial to you know w- women and people of color. Well, I'm, I am sure given the success that you've had that there's going to be a lot more thought put into the why behind that, but I'm just glad you were able to kind of share that with our listeners because I found that striking when we had our conversation a couple of months back. So shifting gears a little bit. So, you know, you were almost two years now into like a true leadership journey, right? Not that you weren't a leader when you were on the firm setting, but it's, it's different. You know, Karen is actually, is obviously several years ahead of you in that regard. <laughs> several lifetimes ahead of me is probably yeah, more exactly. accurate. So but... w- without, without creating any animosity or strife, what, what is it that you have learned from her that you've put into practice in your own leadership setting? That's a really great question. I admire more than I've probably ever told her Karin's ability to make a decision and just move on. And I'm not that it probably doesn't eat her up the way it eats everybody up when you have to make a, make a tough call. But, you know, you make a decision, you move on, and that's what happened. And now it's on to the next thing. And it, I mean, because I watched, so she started the cultural trail. I don't know if, if, if you knew this, but she was employee one for the organization and really built it up over now the last uh, almost 11 years to what it is today. And just watching like, I mean, I remember, I remember when she went into work and was like, well, like, I don't know where my office is. I don't have a computer. How does this going to work? And, and the answer was, yeah, you got to figure that out. So I, I remember those pieces of her journey. And, you know, I went through something similar last year when I first started. So I'm recalling all those lessons back in the day of just, you know, hey, try it. And if it doesn't work, you can fix it later, which is hard for a lawyer to wrap his head around that uh, it's okay to make mistakes, right? So that piece of it, I think, is is what I've taken more than anything. And uh, kind of, Karan, a, a follow-on related question for you is, and I'm going to put you on the spot because you're going to have to answer for yourself and for Tim on this one, but how would you describe both of your journeys to leadership, as well as the biggest lessons that you feel you've learned both for yourself and what you think Tim's biggest lesson learned is? Those are some big ones. Uh, Big questions. I'm interested too. Yeah. I don't know if this is a lesson, but in terms of a leadership lesson learned, but it, it can be hard and lonely, you know, as a leader of an organization, you know, at the end of the day, you know, just kind of building off what Tim said about making decisions someone has to make decisions and they're not always easy. Sometimes they are. And I think that's something that I am still definitely learning and, and kind of leading through is kind of in not, not in a bad way, lonely, but you know, you're balancing all of these inputs and you're balancing all of these people and these relationships that you have. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to do the best with the information that you have um, and the knowledge that you have. And you can't punt that. That is, that is why you're in that role. And that can be lonely sometimes. So that's something I think that is, again, not necessarily a lesson learned, but something that I, I didn't expect. And I'm, you know, I think it's something that I'm, you know, continuing to to learn through and to, to work through and, you know, probably always will if I'm in a role like this. What was the second part? What if... <laughs> I see you're trying to dodge it. I would, I would no, no, no. It was something, about, it was something, about, what do I, something about me and something I have to answer for Tim. Yeah, kind of a a similar question from your perspective. What do you think has been Tim's biggest lesson learned in the first years at Latitude? I'll I'll kind of build off of what he started with when you asked him kind of his adjustments. I think it's really been lesson learned of you can still work really hard and accomplish a lot. You just don't have to be doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
I think he is also learning that the example that he sets as he's growing and building the team at Latitude impacts the people that he brings on board. You know, thinking about, again, setting the examples that you don't need to respond to the email on Saturday five minutes after someone got it, because that's what your team is going to think they have to do. And yep, we all want to be responsible and move things forward. But, you know, I've seen him definitely grow as he's brought on people to his to the Latitude Indiana team saying, you know what, take the rest of the afternoon off. It's been a really busy week. We all need a break. Let's just, you know, check back in on Monday morning. And, you know, that's sometimes knowing what your employees and your team needs, you know, um, and letting them have that and knowing that it's okay to do that, that that's a lot of leading by example as well. Thank you for the candor. And again, as I said at the top, hopefully I've not created an awkward weekend for either one of you. But, no, this will be good. This uh, is good. I, I hope yeah, not. We're, we're <laughs> I don't think so. So, so we're going to shift over to the lightning round here. I, I will just give one anecdote for our listeners. So full disclosure, not only our mutual clients, uh, we are also friends and neighbors. And early on in 2020, when the world went home, Tim and I very clearly had the exact same but opposite walking route that we would both be walking around on conference calls with our earbuds in and would kind of like wave to each other every like 45 minutes as we pass each other going opposite directions. So uh, with that, we'll move to the lightning round. These are going to be four questions. There are no wrong answers, only long answers. You are both encouraged to respond and uh, if necessary, give each other grief. So the first question would be, uh, what would we find on your respective car radios? (laughs) Depends on who's in my car. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I probably by default put it on NPR. And if the kids are in, they like kids bop, which is awful. Or whatever CD our four-year-old is in love with at the time finds its way into the CD player. Yeah, I'll have um, mostly, I guess, rock. I do listen to some sports radio. And then, you know, when the kids are in the car, it's I steer them away from kids bop and try to like get them into different different kinds of music, which... It sometimes is good, but I, I mean, like it's very good. If I hear, <laughs> like, if I hear more than a feeling again, <laughs> like it's just on repeat. Uh, we have to kind of shift gears and and try to find something new, some different kinds of music. Uh, and if the producers of Kids Pop are listening, we truly appreciate the valuable work you do for the youth. Definitely, the, actually, the world. <laughs> I, and we're we're still going to keep um, listening because because our kids love it. Exactly. There's a reason. All right. So the second question is, uh, what would we find on your respective bedside tables? <laughs> I, I have a stack of shirts that are folded that I need to put away. <laughs> Which gets a glare for me every time I walk in the bedroom. Yeah. I have a lot of books. I have, I have a lot of books, too, and under the shirts. Yeah, I keep, <laughs> I keep my I keep my favorite books there. So what uh, what are both of you reading at the moment? I just finished one a night or two ago. I really like nonfiction. And I read a book about the kidnapping of the Chibuk schoolgirls that Boko Haram did in Nigeria several years ago. They hashtag bring back our girls. And while not, you know, necessarily an uplifting book, it was fascinating to read and really to think about how the worldwide social media movement that was meant to bring them back actually hampered their return. So really interesting to learn more about. So I've been sneaking um, my, our kids are, you know, learning to read mode, learning to love to read mode, depending on where they are. And I've been sneaking some of their, you know, youth chapter books and just like 
you know, it takes, it takes us a week or maybe 10 days or whatever to read them one chapter at a time to the kids. So I'll, I'll read ahead and like finish a book at night. <laughs> so that's what I've been reading. Uh, a lot of uh, graphic, graphic novels and um, magic, <laughs> magic Treehouse. And I'm trying to think, what was the uh, other one? Some other stuff. It's been, it's been fun. Oh, oh uh, yeah. Mysteries, uh, old mysteries. Yeah. Yeah, our, our, our 10 and 13-year-old can give you some great advice for some YA fiction for the future. So. There you go. <laughs> so the next question, and, and this is the one I, I, I teased at the front that I know the answer to it because both of you were remarkably consistent in your bios, cats or dogs? I'm actually a dog person. <laughs> but but he, he challenged me once to find a three-legged cat, no, so we do no. have a three-legged cat. I was, I and guess chickens. It, I guess it was a challenge. <laughs> Karen, we were at dinner one night and Karen said she was going to get a cat. And I said, no. And that happened like. We were not married. I don't know. It Back and forth. And finally I said, fine, but only if, only if it has three legs and I can dress it like a pirate. And <laughs> so the next day, Karen came home with two cats, one one with three legs. And Cozy was, was a three-legged cat's name. Cozy and I became really, really good friends. And then we got a second three-legged cat. <laughs> and his name is Wolf. And he and I are really good friends. <laughs> so I guess I guess cat and dog can be the the both answer there. But all right. So last question here before I give both of you an opportunity to tell our listeners how you can learn more about your respective organizations. And this one's a little bit more serious. What is one, not the best, but one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Surround yourself with good people, I think, is one that I I think about a lot. I don't know who said it, but I think it's really true and, and really helpful. Yeah, I, I'm thinking the, the one that, that at least I repeat mo most often, and, and I don't know if somebody told me this or if it was me falling on my face enough, but just don't be afraid to admit a, a mistake. Just admit it, correct it, do your best to fix it, and move on. And those mistakes that tend to really blow up are the ones that, you know, you try to brush under the rug or you try to ignore. Just admit it, apologize, fix it, and move on. Both great pieces of advice. So but before we, we close, uh, I'd, I'd like both of you to give our listeners some directions as to how they can learn both more about Latitude Legal as well as the Indianapolis Cultural Trail. So, Tim, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Latitude is a legal service company. We have now six offices nationally. And our website is www.latitudelegal.com. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for that information about Latitude Legal. And now I will turn it over to Karen to share how people can learn more about Indianapolis Cultural Trail. Thanks, Andrew. You know, as you mentioned, we're a nonprofit organization. So if you're in central Indiana and looking for ways to get involved and see who we are and what we do, we have something for everybody. You can find information on our website at IndieCulturalTrail.org. And for listeners beyond central Indiana, check us out anyway, too. And if you're in Indianapolis, you will definitely find yourself on the Indianapolis Cultural Trail. We have a pretty big social media presence, too. So whatever platform you use, we're, we're probably there. Well, awesome. Karan and Tim Haley, thank you both so much for joining the Growth Adventure podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Andrew. You, too. Thanks, you. Thank you.